Good morning, church family. If you have your Bibles, open them to Genesis, the 22nd chapter. Genesis chapter 22. I'm going to look at verses 1 through 19 in just a moment in a message entitled, Sacrificial Faith, Lessons from Mount Moriah. In the beginning, God the Father, through His eternal Son, brought into existence everything that exists solely by the word of His command. And He yet sustains everything that He created. As the one who is majestic over all, sovereign Lord of the universe, God has the right to govern our lives, to rule our lives according to His purposes, which is to fill the earth with the knowledge of His glory. Our primary calling, beloved, is to glorify God by recognizing His Lordship and by depending upon His mercy for everything that's good. In Genesis chapter 3, I hope you've been reading it. Did you read your, your are you up, up on your reading, guys? Reading through the Bible? Good, keep that up, now don't fall behind. Remember my word of advice, if you do fall behind, don't try to catch up necessarily. If you're behind like a week or two, just go where we're at and pick up right there. But we're going to scan back over some of the things we, we read this past week. And in Genesis 3, the narrative that unfolds reveals how our first parents were enticed by sin to follow their own evil desires, as James puts it, to sin, to do what God had said they, they could not do. That is, not to trust God for their provision and to forsake His glory. Deceived by Satan into not trusting His word, to deviate from His purposes for them in creation, they rejected God's counsel. They ate from the fruit of the tree from which they had been forbidden to eat, lured by the idea that they could be like God. Their fall and to sin really, really marked the point where the self-rule of man usurped the sovereign rule of God, leading then to a rejection of God's provision for life. And with Adam's fall, the whole human race fell. And now all are born with a sinful nature that's inherently bent toward sin and self. The root of sin from the beginning of man's existence has always been self-reliance and self-exaltation. You see, God's wrath is provoked not only by the wicked things that man do, by the evil deeds that men commit, but also by the often more subtle but nonetheless deadly sin of self-exaltation. Self-exaltation inevitably motivates men to evil activities, all of which rob God of His glory. The consequence of all this is a profound enmity between fallen humanity and God. The natural heart, you see, is simply not inclined to submit to God. Paul puts it this way, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's laws. Indeed, it cannot submit to God's laws. Not only is the human heart unwilling to submit to God, but ultimately it seeks its own glory. Jesus asks in John 5, 44, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? 
The natural heart is not willing to submit to God, seeks its own glory, and the natural heart deeply resists the call of God to turn and to become like little children that they might enter the kingdom of God. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like little children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And God, being well God, creator of the universe and all that's in it, when His glory is impugned because He is perfectly righteous, will not remain indifferent. He asked in Isaiah 48, 11, How should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. And so, humanity, all apart from Christ, are helpless in and of themselves as they lie under God's just and righteous condemnation. In the beginning, God created everything, the sun, this planet, the whole universe. He populated the earth with plant and, and fish and, and birds and, and bugs and animals of all sorts, and finally humans, and it was good. In fact, what did the Scripture say? It's very good. Creation enjoyed perfect harmony. When Adam and Eve ate from the fruit of that forbidden tree, ignoring God's warning, everything changed. Everything. Before the fall, everything had worked according to God's grace. But, but after the fall, the, the world quickly became a place characterized by decay and disease, sin and selfishness, discomfort and death. And going forward, people were, were born with Adam's rebellious nature. And with just a few generations, the entire human race was so irredeemably wicked and corrupt that with a great flood, God wiped out all but just a handful of lives. In the great flood, Noah and his family, Genesis 6 through 9. Several generations after this new beginning, the, the human population rebounded. But the moral fiber of humanity did not. When men built the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, a blatant manifestation of, God's, of man's pride and idolatry, that relationship, that general relationship that man had enjoyed with God, was shattered. And man was scattered over all the face of the earth, and languages confused so they couldn't communicate with each other. At that point... At that point, God could have chosen to turn His back on creation. He could have, he could have abandoned humanity to its own self-exalting, self-destructive ignorance. He wasn't morally... He's God. He's not morally obligated to rescue humanity from the evil it had chosen in which it was now mired. But God had a plan. God had a plan to redeem the world. And from the human side of things... That plan of redemption all began with one man, Abram. Would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word? After these things, beginning in verse 1, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. 
On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both went of them together. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for I, now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and, and behold, behind him there was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. The reading of God's word will be blessed. Would you please be seated? Abraham lived approximately from about 2165 B.C. to about 1990 B.C. God would change his name at a, at a critical point in the, in the narrative. But for the, first, for the first 99 of his 175 years that he lived, he answered to Abram. Now, when God renamed a man or, or a woman, it was generally to establish a, a, a sort of new identity. God changed Abram's name, name which meant high father, to Abraham, meaning father of a multitude. We saw that in Genesis 17, verse 5. At the same time, God changed Abraham's wife's name from Sarai, meaning my princess, to Sarah, meaning noble woman or mother of nations. Genesis 17, 5 says of Sarah, I will bless her and she shall become, and it's implied here, mother of nations. She shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. And this name change took place when God gave Abraham the, the covenant of, of circumcision. God, God also reaffirmed his promise to give Abraham a son, specifically through Sarah, and told him that he, could, he should name this son Isaac, which we know means laughter. Abraham had another son, Ishmael, through Sarah's handmaiden, Hagar. But God's promise to bless the nation through Abraham was to be fulfilled through Isaac's line, from whom Jesus descended, as we see in Matthew Chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Isaac was the father of Jacob, who would later become Israel. 
He had 12 sons who would form the 12 tribes of Israel, the Jews. And the physical descendants of Abraham and Sarah formed so many nations, but in a spiritual sense, we need to see that their descendants are even more numerous. Galatians 3.29 says that all who belong to Jesus Christ, Jew, Gentile, male or female, all of us who are His children are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. It's important that we understand that it was in Abraham's day that, that really a new era of human history begins. God's redemptive plan for mankind was to send His Word to His chosen people Israel, the children of Abraham, that they would hear His Word, that they would possess His Word, that they would preserve His Word in writing, and that they would proclaim His Word to the nations of the world. It'd be through His people, through this people, that the message of salvation would come, the message that sinners like us could be reconciled to God through faith. So in a very real sense, the fountain of salvation flows through Abraham. He is a central figure, if not the central figure outside of God, in salvation history, a model of faith. And that's so very important, you see, if salvation is going to be by faith. His life becomes a pattern for all would come to God by faith. We look at this story, and it's, not, and it's difficult not to wonder at the strangeness of the story. God tells Abraham to sacrifice his promised son, Isaac. What a curious thing for God to command of Abraham. I mean, what, what in the world is going on here? Child sacrifice? The barbarians who lived around Abraham and that culture practiced it at that time, but it was an abomination to God, something he, in fact, command his people not to do. Not to mention what we imagine would be our response to that command. So, so we read this story with no small amount of surprise. We, we easily see what a terrific challenge, unspeakable challenge this was for Abraham, don't we? To say that his son Isaac who had been born in a very special way, is, is a huge understatement. He was born long after Abraham and his wife should have been able to have a child. And there are special promises from God woven around Isaac's birth. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, when Abraham was already 75 years old, God promises that he will be the father of, of a great nation. But he doesn't have any children. And that promise is repeated in Genesis chapter 13, verses 14 through 16. But there's still no sign of children. In Genesis 15, verses 4 through 5, when Abraham doubts, God renews the promise. But there are still no children. So when he's 86, Abraham decides to take things to his own hands. He fathers a child through Hagar, one of his slave girls, Genesis 16. In Genesis 17, verses 17 through 19, 13 years later, when Abraham is 90 and Sarah is, excuse me, is 99, and Sarah is 90, God renews his promise. And finally, in Genesis chapter 21, verses 1 and 2, the promised son arrives. And then, in chapter 22, God says, Take him and offer him as a burnt offering. Kill your son, the son of promise. This, this seems so deplorable, so outrageous. And, and, and remember, we know how the story ends. 
right? But Abraham didn't. And I have no problem thinking that he was seriously questioning God, at least in his mind. We don't have any words recorded. But he had to be thinking, what in the world is God thinking? We believers here, we can relate. We can relate to this, to a degree, to this line of questioning. Who among us have not asked our Father that question? What in the world are you thinking, God? Now, now obviously, Abraham's experience was utterly bizarre. So surreal. It's impossible to know exactly what he was thinking, but we can get in the ballpark. You know, something happens. Something disappointing. Maybe deeply disappointing. Or we experience a loss. A parent, a spouse, a child, a friend. And there's a part of us that's feeling like, that's too much, God. This is too hard. This is too painful. This is too harsh. And God is acting in a seemingly ungodly like way, ungodlike way, and, and we're not feeling reassured, and we're not feeling at peace, and we're struggling to feel the love in what is happening. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. In fact, you've made a decision not to follow Christ because of something that has happened in your life that seems tragic and senseless. You said no to Christ because of that. And you think, how could I believe in a God who would allow something like that to happen? How could you say that God loves me? But beloved, what matters is not our feeble and flawed way of understanding of what God in His sovereignty is up to. There is so much we cannot know. But He knows everything. About everything. And Isaiah prophet writes, For my thoughts, God speaking, are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We readily recall those words. I bet you everybody in here just about could put those words down on paper. You have them committed to memory, at least in your own language. The point is, we know that part right there, and we believe that part right there. But what about these words? Do we believe them as well? For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout and giving seed to the sower and bread to the inner, here it comes, so shall, God speaking, so shall my word that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Beloved, do you believe that's the truth? Do you believe that's the truth? Then do you not see the assurance, the comfort, the, the hope bound up in those words of promise from our Father? But it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. This is the truth. Say this is the truth. What matters is truth. All that matters is it's truth. And we don't have to guess when it comes to the Word of God. He's made it clear in His Word. We know from God's Word that He's a God of love. We know from God's Word that He cares about what happens to us far more than we imagine. We know from God's Word that He loves more deeply than we can comprehend. We matter to God. Say, He loves me, I matter to God. 
Amen. Listen, you matter to God even when there are times and situations and difficulties where you do not feel very loved or cared for or very important at all. But what we have to remember, beloved, and this truth is clear in the Bible as well, is that God is not some kind of Santa Claus figure. He's Almighty God, sovereign ruler of the universe. The universe He created, He sustains. He is in control. He is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-seeing. And He is working out all of His righteous plans for His righteous purposes. So many people today want a God that is there for them. A God of their own creation who will answer their prayers and meet their needs. But they don't want to hear anything about a God who expects something from them. Yet the Bible reveals God as the one to whom we are accountable. He's the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess to that end. So even if we don't get it, God had the right to ask Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, however little this pleases us or makes sense to us or tempts us to be angry with him. When God says something, the argument is over. R.C. Sproul says, If ever a person had room to complain of injustice, it was Jesus. He was the only innocent man ever to be punished by God. If we stagger at the wrath of God, let us stagger at the cross. Here is where our astonishment should be focused. If we, if we have cause for moral outrage, let it be directed at Golgotha. Beloved, His purpose is not just to be there for us. There have always been and there will always be things that God does that we will be unable to explain and do not understand at the time they're happening. And again, how can we expect to understand it? We read those verses earlier. God is beyond our understanding, and He was beyond Abraham's understanding as well. How do we respond when God asks us to do something we do not want to do, something we do not understand? Do we argue with Him? Do we, do we put him off? Do we simply outright disobey him, just like pretend like we didn't hear it or know it? What did Abraham do? Well, in the text in verse 3 says, So Abraham rose early in the morning. Abraham immediately went about doing what God had told him to do. He didn't argue. He didn't delay. He obeyed. We, we don't read anything about what Abraham might have felt, about what he must have been thinking. We can only imagine. But that's not even the point. The point is, Abraham obeyed. Listen, God, being omniscient, knows the future as precisely as He knows the past. And God doesn't just test us to see how, our, how well our faith is going to hold up under fire. He prepares tests of faith to prepare us for what lies ahead, as well as to show us the progress He's made in conforming us to the image of His Son. And whether we pass or fail, we learn about ourselves. We learn where there's need for improvement. We learn where we need to grow. We learn where our weaknesses are at. We, we look back and we see His hand at work in our lives. But let's go back to Abraham's test. Isaac was old enough to travel without his mom, engage his father in reasonable conversation, to climb a mountain with a load of wood, Right? arm load full of firewood. God said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah 
and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. No indication of hesitation, no indication of reluctance or or resistance or arguing or no negotiating, no begging, no delay whatsoever. The text says that the next morning Abraham got up early. What about Isaac? Surely Isaac, because we see how sure he was to have the kind of conversation he had but he must have wondered what what on earth is this about but Isaac had been raised to trust his father so when his dad said let's go he went when they closed in on their destination Abraham saw the place of sacrifice that was looming above them and then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and, and come again to you. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. What an amazing thing to say. The only way Abraham could obey God, the only way he could say something like that was because of his great faith in God. He truly believed God. God had promised him that a line of descendants would come through Isaac. And Abraham believed that God was not just going to forget that promise, just ignore it like he never made it, but that God would somehow work that out. Listen, this is not your pastor reading something into the story here. We know this. You read Hebrews 11, right? So there's no way Abraham had a clue how God would work it out only that God would work it out when we're facing difficult circumstances times where God seems to be acting in a way that causes us to wonder what's going on and even doubts his goodness for us at least when things are not not clear to us at all we need to hold on to what is clear God's word the God's promises in God's Word, and then trust Him that He's going to work out things in a way that we cannot understand. And when you do obey Him without arguing or delaying, and I get it, that is easier said than done. So we see Abraham and Isaac walking up that rock-strewn hill, the sun beating down on them. We can, we can feel that almost as we read this story. And in verse 7, Isaac speaks up and asks his father a question, a very good question. He says, I see the fire, I see the wood. Where's the lamb? Where's the lamb for the offering, Father? Where's the sacrifice, Father? Abraham responds in verse 8, God will provide. In other words, I'm not sure how. I'm not sure what God's going to do. But I have faith in him. And these words of Abraham did more than just reassure Isaac. It reflected, really, it reflected Abraham's utter confidence that God was going to do what was right. And most important for us, again, we're looking at it from this perspective. We already know how this works out, right? Most important, Abraham unwittingly points to an event 2,000 years into the future where God would indeed see to a lamb. And he gave his own son to become the atoning sacrifice to free us from the death we deserve as a consequence of our sin. In verse 9 and verse 10, Abraham builds the altar. He ties up his son. He lays him on the altar. He's at the point of sacrificing. When at the last instant, the angel calls out 
Abraham, Abraham, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld, withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham had passed God's test. He looks around, he sees a, a ram caught in a bush by his horns. His faith has been proven, and God has provided a sacrifice himself. As Abraham had stated to Isaac earlier, God saw to the lamb himself. Can you, can you imagine the, the flood of relief that must have flowed through Abraham from head to toe? At the last moment, everything works out for the glory of God, and the angel of the Lord renews and reaffirms God's promised blessing, and Abraham and Isaac return, verse 19. But what does it all mean? Is this just a story designed to encourage us to trust God, to teach us to, to obey God without question, even when His ways seem inexplicable, not in line with what we know to be in His character? Well, this, this story is recorded in the Bible to encourage us, but, there, but there's more to it than that. So much more to it than that. If we're going to gain a grasp on what is going on here, if we want to understand what's going on here beyond the obvious, we need to look more closely at the place where all this happened. Let's back up to verse 2, where God tells Abraham, go to the land of Moriah, there on a mountain that I will show you. Were there not any mountains where they were at? Any hills? Any places that would be worthy to have a sacrifice on? Wasn't there a place closer that would have done just as well? What difference did it make? But somehow this place was so very important. Look at the second part of verse 3. And then look at verse 4. And then look at verse 9. And we see in verse 14 that Abraham even gives the place a special name. The Lord will provide. So what's so special about Mount Moriah? Again, we read earlier, so Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in fact, people will still use that name as a proverb. On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. A more literal translation of Jehovah-Jireh is the Lord will see to it. The Lord will see to it. The Lord saw to Abraham's test, and he saw to supplying everything that he needed. And listen, believer, the Lord will forever see to it. Say, the Lord will see to it. Never forget that name. When you come to a situation that, that appears impossible or improbable, name it Jehovah-Jireh. The Lord will see to it. Beloved, look for a ram nearby. Remember, the Lord is with you. He's always providing for you. Another whole sermon here we don't have time for is on that mount was not just Isaac and Abraham and a distance away, two young men. God was there. God was there with Abraham the whole time, watching the whole show. Look for a ram nearby, beloved. Right now, think about that provision you need that only God can provide. I'm not talking about a new Mercedes or or some mere desire, I mean a real essential provision. What do you really need from the Lord? Follow Abraham's example. Don't presume to tell the Lord what to do. Don't waste your time guessing how he might accomplish what you're asking him to do. Simply trust him. And listen, expect, expect his supernatural involvement. 
and accept whatever he chooses to provide or not provide, regardless of how unlikely or how unusual. Rest in his unfailing love and his righteous character. So what about that place? The fact is, we've all heard of it. This place is very familiar to us, but we know it by another name. The exact location, if you're going to give longitude and latitude coordinates, is debatable, but most commentators tell us it refers to the old site of Herod's temple in Jerusalem, where the Dome of the Rock Mosque now stands. We read about, read about it in 2 Chronicles 3.1. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father, and the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So then Mount Moriah, this place to which Abraham and Isaac traveled, is the geographical location upon which Jerusalem will one day be built. More precisely, it was the place where a thousand years later the temple itself would be built and sacrifices would be made. It was the place where the Jews would travel to for Festivals, again, the place where temple sacrifices were made. And this verse not only refers to Mount Moriah, but also to the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And we see this special story woven through the fabric of this narrative. We find it recorded in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1 through chapter 22, verse 1. We won't go into that. We don't have time. But same place. We read there about David provoking God's anger, about God sending an angel as a messenger of his anger who was killing thousands of people. But the, but the important thing for us to see is that the threshing floor of Ornan was the place where God's anger turned away. It's the place where sacrifices were made. So what's the point? The key to understanding the point of the story is found in understanding the specialness of the place where it all happened, a special place very near another very special place where the unique, another unique, one-of-a-kind son would one day be sacrificed. If you, if you think this story and what God asked of Abraham sounds cruel, you need to remember God doesn't ask anything of Abraham that he wasn't willing to do himself. He did sacrifice his son for us. Abraham was prevented from going through the sacrifice, but God did go through with his. Look again at what Abraham said to Isaac when he asked his father about the sacrifice. God himself will provide a sacrifice. Abraham even names the, even names the place the Lord will provide. Brother, we need to see the, the deep meaning in this name. Literally, God Himself sees to the provision of the sacrifice that is needed. This strange incident that occurred 2,000 years before Christ is a picture pointing forward to the sacrifice of the unique Son of God, the sacrifice that would provide for our sins. In the place where Jerusalem would one day be built, in the place where God's anger would be turned away through the temple sacrifices and later the sacrifice. All of this story was recorded and well known long before Jesus came to Bethlehem, yet, yet in this supernaturally amazing way, He fulfilled it all. Beloved, you can't make this stuff up. It's something only God could do, and God has recorded it here in Genesis so that you and I could understand the big picture 
of what he's doing in the world. We see in this story a glimpse of God's love for us. We see in this story a glimpse of, of God's redemptive plan that would mean the sacrifice of his son. Well, let's wrap this up. Abraham was a man of faith. And I'm going to let Tim Challies, one of my favorite authors and bloggers, sum up what we've learned, what we've seen in this story. And we've seen that true faith does not demand answers. Love, we don't need faith when we have all the answers. We need faith when the way ahead seems unclear, he writes, or intimidating when answers are hard to find. Faith, he writes, is trusting in someone who has the answers, capital S, someone who has the answers we lack. Faith is trusting in the goodness and the character of God. And so then, so then ultimately, faith is not about the outcome. Faith is about the person. Abraham's faith, you see, was not in Isaac's survival. His faith was in God. Which, which means he could face losing Isaac without losing his faith. He was so convinced of the goodness and the faithfulness of God, he was willing to do what looked impossible. He wouldn't hold back anything. And what I'm saying to you then is, beloved, the Christian faith is not a blind faith. It's a seeing faith. The simple truth is that Abraham believed the promises of God because, because he trusted in the character of God. He trusted God even in the way it seemed so strange and so outrageously unclear and, and contradictory. You know, we Christians are often ridiculed for following God in what some people call a blind faith. But that's not the truth. That's wrong. Again, the Christian faith is not a blind faith. It's a seeing faith. It's a seeing faith because we've seen God work. We've seen His handiwork. And we love God. And we trust God so much that we don't need to have all the answers. We trust God. We obey God. Even when we do not understand. Even when we cannot see the outcome. So today I find myself wondering this. Will I trust God even when the way is unclear and I do not understand? Will I joyfully submit to God's will knowing and trusting that He's good? Is my faith deep enough to say I don't understand you all the time, God? But I know that you're good. Is my faith in an outcome or is it in God?